Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 2. John chapter 2 is where we left off. If you're visiting today, I'm so glad you're here. It's our custom to just work through books of the Bible primarily, and we started a series through the Gospel according to John a few weeks ago, and we're in chapter two. As you're finding that, let me just piggyback on what Springer said, invite you out to our Bible study through Galatians tonight. It's very informal. We're just kind of working through verse by verse. If you missed the first week, it's okay. Go ahead and jump in. I hope it'll benefit you. Uh, we stop and ask questions, comments along the way. It's, it's really, I think, an uh, encouraging time. And it lasts about an hour or so, and we pray a little bit. So we'd love for you to have, uh, have you out tonight. And uh, as you're finding John chapter 2, I just, uh, I just you know, saw a few folks walk into the sanctuary that are members of the church that it just, my heart just was just filled with thankfulness to the Lord and compassion uh, this past year, you know, this is the last Sunday of February, and next week is March. I'm actually going to be out of town. Robert's going to be preaching, so we'll be out of John. But think about it. It's been a year since March of 2020 when really, in many ways, metaphorically, the world was turned upside down, and I was just seeing some folks come in whose lives have been drastically changed, who've suffered through a very difficult year, who've lost loved ones, and uh, the Lord is with us friends. Uh, he is helping his people, and I pray that even our text today would just serve as an encouragement that uh, God is for us and not against us, and all of this somehow is working towards his great plan in our lives. So let me pray, and then we're going to get right into John 2. Now, here's what I want to give you a heads up for John 2. We're going to work through this short and familiar story of Jesus turning the water into wine. But it's really not about this miracle so much. This is a, a, one of the more familiar stories in the Bible, even for people that don't have a lot of contact with the Scriptures. It's the first miracle that's recorded in John. But I think sometimes we just kind of fly over the surface of what this miracle is about. It's actually a much deeper truth that I think John is intending to lift our eyes so that we would see something about Jesus and his mission in the rest of the gospel. And so we're going to work through it. I've got four truths. Really, the first three are kind of like little nuggets along the way. And then the fourth one is, I think, what the text is ultimately about. So let me pray, and we'll get into this, this beautiful story about a wedding feast. Lord, uh, we need you so, so dearly as we prayed, as we sung think of John 15 that we'll get to eventually, eventually where Jesus says that apart from me you can do nothing. The flesh profits nothing at all, Jesus says in John 6. Lord, we're completely dependent on you. We're, we're so often unaware of you. Even those of us that know you, tune us in. Give us a deep sense of your abiding presence and your work in our lives. For my friends in this room that don't know you, I pray that you would, by your grace, open their eyes to the beauty of Christ so that they might trust in you and be reconciled to you as we read from 2 Corinthians 5. 
for believers in this room, encourage us, Lord. Make us more like Jesus. And help me as I try and help my brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1 of John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And so we don't know much about this. Um, we don't know much about really what's going on here, but we know that Jesus is at a wedding. It's, it's, um, it's probably a family that he knew in Cana of Galilee. It's a very small town. But one thing that we can say about this is that although this is not necessarily explicitly stated in the, the, the message or the, the passage, this is just a narrative of Jesus going to a wedding. But I think implied in this is this clear sense that Jesus' presence at this wedding is Jesus' blessing of the whole institution of marriage. In fact, the whole institution of marriage is something that God has instituted all the way back in Genesis chapter 2 where God creates Adam and then he creates Eve out of Adam and he gives this couple to one another and he says that these two shall become one flesh. And then we see here Jesus in, in the Gospels talking about marriage as being between one man and one woman. It leads us to this truth. The first little nugget that I want you to see is this truth, the first truth, that God has ordained marriage between a man and a woman. And that is the only, listen to me, hear, hear me on this, that is the only, clearly the only faithful biblical expression of marriage. Now, I want to speak compassionately to especially the young people in this uh, church that have grown up in a culture that is uh, being uh, just assaulted or really is doing the assaulting against this biblical understanding of what marriage is. You're growing up in a world that is, is, is just an avalanche of messages that runs completely contrary to this. Let me say a few things about marriage, things that I think are utterly clear in the Bible, but especially I want to reinforce, and, and hear, hear me on this, especially if you're younger and you've grown up in a culture that is allergic to any sort of absolute clarity and truth on marriage. Hear my heart on this. This is not me pounding my fist in an angry sort of way. This is me wanting to help guard your hearts and minds from the culture that you're growing up in. Here's a few things that we want to say about marriage. Marriage is very, very important. In fact, I think it's probably, biblically, I think we can stand on this, that it's, it's the most important relationship, earthly relationship. Not merely because of what it does for a person who's married. There's many benefits to being married. The, the love, the, the shared life in it is a wonderful thing. But marriage, and we'll see this as we go through this story, marriage is intended to actually point to something much greater than just an earthly benefit and our joy. It's meant to be a kind of picture of Christ and his relationship with his people, the church. In fact, all throughout the Bible, Jesus is referred to as the groom, the bridegroom, and the church is the bride of Christ. And so the earthly relationship of a man and a woman in marriage is a kind of shadow 
that is pointing to the gospel itself where Jesus comes to save, to reconcile, to lay down his life, to redeem his bride, the church. Now, no earthly husband redeems his bride in the sense that he dies for her sins. Only Jesus can do that. But the relationship between a man and a woman is meant to be a kind of picture of that work of Jesus for his bride. So marriage is is incredibly important. But I also want to say that marriage is not ultimate. One of the things that I think we have done poorly as a church in many ways is we have made an idol out of marriage. As if a person is not complete unless they are married. And I think the presupposition behind that is a kind of idolatry of personal connection with another person. As important as it is, and as clearly as what it points to, you are not an incomplete person if you are not married or you are single. Some Christians, clearly, according to 1 Corinthians 7, are called to singleness so that they might devote more of their energies to serving the Lord. So marriage is clearly very important, It's a picture of the gospel, but it's not ultimate. And marriage is meant to be complementary between a man and a woman. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, when God gives a woman to a man, it's at the end of the creation narrative that tells us how the world, the creation itself, complements one another. You see the days of creation where God creates the the heavens and the earth to complement one another. He creates the land and the sea. They go together. They complement one another. He creates the night and the day. They complement one another. He, and, so, and then, finally, as the pinnacle of his creation, he creates man and woman. They complement one another. And that in itself is a witness of God's design for gender, for maleness and femaleness. Listen to me, young people, and I don't mean to be um, a, a flippant or overly graphic. God has given you a body And he's given you an anatomical body, either male or female. And your body in marriage is meant to complement. It fits. Your gender fits with the other gender. And it's part of God's design. And any cultural message that is contrary to that is a lie. It's a lie. Now, one of the arguments that is used against the truths that I have just said is that they say, well, you know, Christians that say uh, any marriage is not between a man and a woman, um, you know, that's, that's just hypocrisy. They're just picking and choosing sins because Christians do all these other sins, but they're just pointing to this one thing. Well, well yes, we are hypocrites. We're all hypocrites. But just because we're not perfect doesn't erase the truth of God, right? Just because... You know, I'll I'll own it myself. Just because one Californian is a knucklehead doesn't mean that everybody in California is a knucklehead. Maybe most. I don't know. Just because one Italian does something stupid doesn't mean that all Italians are... Do you understand that that even that rationale doesn't really hold water? Uh, Of course we're all sinners. Of course there's all sorts of other sin in the Bible. But God has clearly designed marriage between a man and a woman. And you need, to, you need to hear that reinforced compassionately and clearly in church because you are hearing lies 
everywhere else. And so I say that with a tender-hearted pastoral heart for you. Because you need to know that. And you need to hear it a lot. Because the thing that you hear most, you tend to morph into. But the Bible says in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing. And we, we do tend to just sort of, the thing that we hear the most, it tends to sort of has a gravitational pull. And you need to hear that marriage clearly, and don't be ashamed of this young person. Marriage is between one man and one woman. And although it's not explicitly stated in this text, Jesus' presence is this wedding between a man and a woman, I think is a kind of subtle endorsement of that. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So, okay, now, the, verses 3 and 4, we're gonna, this is going to get interesting. 3, 4, and 5 are, are doozies, or especially verse 4. So, so there's this wedding, and the wine has ran out. Now, we need to think about what weddings. Now, weddings in, and I'm thankful for this, for this because I just had a wedding that I participated in as one of the, 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 the parents, and I had to pay a little bit for the wedding, and it was just a one-day event. Praise God. But back in, in, in first century uh, Israel, Palestine, it would have been a week-long event, and they would have a seven-day party, basically. And what was going on there is that there would be a year engagement and a seven-day wedding party. And in a sense, the groom, the bridegroom, was responsible for paying for this party. And that became a kind of sign to the world, to the culture, to the families around him, the community around him, that he could provide for and take care of his bride. And so for th there to be a breakdown in the wine supply would have been a tremendous embarrassment to the bridegroom, to the groom. In fact, this is crazy, I read this in several commentaries this week, that it was even written in literature at the time that ru running out of wine or food in a first century wedding would be possible grounds for suing the groom for his lack of preparation. I mean, that's a kick in the head, isn't it? You run out of wine, your future father-in-law's upset at you, the whole town thinks you're a total failure, and now you're getting sued. And so the wine has ran out, and Mary, doesn't say her name explicitly, but the mother of Jesus, obviously Mary, said they have no wine. Now, what's Mary's role? It doesn't really say what her place is in this story, but evidently she was, you know, maybe a relative that was sort of in charge of serving, maybe kind of some sort of catering role, and they have no wine. And then verse 4, verse 4 is really interesting. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, uh, I, I, I've never called my mama woman. <laughs> I, I had a, I went through a smart aleck phase, but I. <laughs> so what's going on here? Now, to our twenty-first century English ears, this sounds a little disrespectful. But it's, it's really not. The word woman here in the original language that Jesus would have been speaking, Greek, was, was more a, a sign of respect, kind of like we would say in the South, ma'am. 
In fact, he uses this word again at the end of the Gospel of John when he is on the cross and he is saying, he's saying to his disciple that, that I believe John, woman, you know, here's, here's your, t- take care of this woman. And it's really not a disrespectful word, but it is a distancing word. He doesn't call her mother. And that gives us a clue here. And this is really important to to give us a sense of the purpose of this story. The purpose of this scene is that we see here in verse 4 a transition happening in the relationship between Jesus and Mary. For 30 years, he's been silent. There's been no ministry, and he's, he's lived with his mother, and probably Joseph is, is dead at this time. So Mary is probably, very likely, a widow, and that's why she asks Jesus. She's coming to Jesus. They have no wine, and clearly implied in that is, what, what are we going to do, Jesus? So what's going on there with her question? And then Jesus is sort of respectful but distancing response. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Well, I, I think it's probably, some people have wondered, did Mary have a sense that he was going to perform this miracle of turning the water into wine? What's going on there? I, I think actually the explanation is a little bit more above the surface and just sort of obvious. Imagine, you have raised the Son of God. Now, clearly Jesus has not done anything in a sort of uh, stepping out into public ministry up to this point, but he still is the perfect Son of God. I mean, you have raised the most resourceful human being that has ever lived. And it would just make sense. Stuff's broke around the house. Jesus, what what do you think? What should we do? You know, air conditioner's not working. Jesus, you got got any thoughts? I think there's just a practicality here to the the sanctification, the, the purity, the holiness, the... The resourcefulness, the usefulness of Jesus to man, I think that's what's going on. They have no wine. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, this is an interesting response. What does he mean by hour? Well, in the rest, and this is a good way to kind of understand the Bible, when you see a phrase used within a book, like John says, the hour, you, you look at the way the rest of that book, that particular Bible author uses that phrase. And almost exclusively, when John, the gospel writer, uses the phrase, when Jesus says, my hour, it's referring to Jesus's work on the cross, his death and his resurrection. And so Jesus is, he's transitioning. Remember, we're just in the first week of his ministry. He has come on the scene. John the Baptist has announced who he is. He's called his first five followers. He's at this wedding now. And he says this cryptic thing to his mother, my hour has not yet come. He's beginning to transition from being this anonymous Young man that's grown up in this house, and he's stepping out into his public role as the Son of God that has come to reconcile the earth to himself. And so he tells her, in a sense, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, but we're going to read in just a moment that actually he, he ends up, it sounds like he's saying, don't bother me with this. But then he actually answers her request in a way that she very likely wasn't anticipating. Verse 5, 
And I love this about Mary. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, let me just pause here and just mention that, especially if you grew up in a Catholic background, um, this passage right here, verses 4 and 5, believe it or not, is the, the place, it's kind of the foundation, biblically, of this Catholic, really very wrong understanding of Mary's role. And they see Mary as a kind of co-mediator with Christ. And so if you grew up Catholic, you know that there's all these strange prayers and things that you need to do to Mary. And they have viewed Mary as a kind of mediator between man and Christ. That is absolutely wrong. Mary is not some sort of mediator between Jesus, between God and man. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And so uh, th- that is a, that's a total uh, theological pretzel that they've wrenched out of this text and made something out of nothing. This is just Mary saying, can you help us out? And Jesus is saying, uh, woman, my hour has not come yet. And then verse 5, I, I do, although I want to say that Mary in the Catholic Church is exalted to a place of idolatry and really heresy, I do want to come back, though, into verse 5 and say that Mary is really notable. She's really a, a wonderful woman, an example of faith here. And she says in verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I just want us to note Mary's hardiness here. I mean, let's, she has raised Jesus. She knew that he could probably do something. They have no wine, and instead of saying, well, Mom, what are we going to do? I mean, come on, maybe, maybe I can run to the, down to the local, you know, <laughs> package store and get whatever, I don't know. He, 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 this is an embarrassing moment. Maybe she was related to the groom, I don't know. And this is, this is a tense social moment. She's trying to solve a problem, and Jesus kind of gives her a respectful stiff arm. And what is Mary's response in verse 5? It's hearty. Do whatever he tells you to do. She's kind of like the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 where Jesus, Jesus calls, not only does he call his mom a woman, he calls another woman a dog. <laughs> Matthew 15, there's this Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus and she says, you know, I'm, I'm here, I need, I, let, let me come to you. She's expressing faith in him. And he says, I've only come for the, the you know, I've only come for the, the, the people of God for Israel. And she says, yeah, but even, 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 even the dogs, you know, come We'll, we'll eat the crumbs from the master's table. And, and Jesus is, 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 in a sense here, speaking to Mary in, in a kind of, again, sort of pushing away sort of way. But her response is not to be easily offended. She's not wimpy. Come on, just the American church culture. Oh, and nobody spoke to me. Or somebody just kind of gave me the wrong sort of whatever. We're just so easily offended in our age. And Mary has Jesus tell her, woman, what are you talking to me about? My hour's not yet come. And her response is not to go sulk in the corner or find another church or get mad or pout. It is to say, do whatever he tells you. That's really significant. Mary's faith, that, that, that song, Trust and Obey, I'm not going to sing it for you, I almost, I almost broke into song. For there's no other way to be happy in 
Jesus, but to trust and obey. That's Mary's a picture of that. Which brings us, I think, to the second truth, a little nugget in this passage, is that faith is trusting and obeying without full understanding. That's the essence of faith. Mary doesn't know what he's about to do. She might even be a little bit, her feathers might be a little ruffled by Jesus' abruptness. But Mary has faith and her faith trusts and responds and obeys to Jesus even though she doesn't fully understand what's going on in that moment. Now, I'm not calling for some sort of irrational, unreasonable thing. We, 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 we can see things and we can, we can make reasonable decisions based on what God has told us. But the point is, is that we don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. And faith is trusting even when we don't have a full understanding. Now, friends, there's lots we could say on this point about just decision-making and the will of God. I mean, this doesn't mean that you just jump into something absolutely ridiculous. I think God gives us community. He gives us people that are mentors to us in our life. He gives us his word, which is guardrails to us, where we can discern through the process of wisdom what the will of God is and what the best way forward for us is. But here, I just want to note that Mary is a wonderful example of faith. Verse 6. Now it gets another just beautiful symbolism in the the remaining part of this passage. Now there were six stone jars, water jars there, for the Jewish, Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So there's these water jars, and they were there for the, the, the purifying, the washing of the hands. And, and this became kind of a, a you know, there's the Old Testament law, and the Old Testament law commanded rituals for purification for sacrifices. And if you've been doing our Bible reading plan, the five-day Bible reading plan, you're, you're getting through, you're slogging through Leviticus right now. And let me just say that you can, it's okay to read Leviticus quickly, especially those passages that are just talking about all of the sacrifices for all sorts of different things, discharges and lepers and all of these things. And what's going on in these cleanliness laws in the Old Testament to prepare people for worship is a kind of Old Testament shadow that is pointing to the cleanliness that only comes to us through Christ. But here's what people do when they grab a hold of religion and law is that they add on to it their own traditions. And that's, in a sense, what the Pharisees were doing with these water jars that were for really washing their hands before they would eat. Look at Mark chapter 7. We're going to have it up on the screen. You don't need to flip there. But this is telling you what these water jars were for. Mark chapter 7. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they had come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. That's an indictment of the things that they're adding onto the law. And that's what these water pots were for. 
And so Jesus, in a sense, there's great symbolism in this. Jesus is taking these water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, which were really an extra yoke on the people, and he's about to use them as a symbol of the new covenant of grace, which is in Christ. And they each hold about 20 or 30 gallons. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars. And let's just read this, read this slowly and carefully. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, so it's an empty, empty jar, about 20 or 30 big, big gallon, big, big vessels. Fill them up all the way to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Well, when did it, where's the miracle? You remember that? Where's the beef? Like, where, where is it? It's somewhere in the, between the period at the end of verse 8 and the white space between verse 9. It just kind of happened. So understated, so subtle, almost imperceptible. This is Jesus' first miracle. You would think that he would make a big show of it. That he'd gather everybody around and say, okay, here we go. On the count of three, hocus pocus, by the authority invested in me as the son of God, wine. (laughs) But there's nothing. Fill it up with water. Take it out. Man, this this is the best stuff yet. Who does this? Where's the miracle? It's so subtle. Which leads us to the third little nugget I want us to see here before we end is that Jesus doesn't need any raw material. He creates and recreates out of nothing. There is nothing in these pots, these old jars. And he fills them up with water and he turns that water into wine and it's so subtle. Jesus created the world and he recreates our hearts. God doesn't need something to start out with. Friends, this should give us great hope for ourselves and for others. God needs no raw material to work with. I think we should stop saying, and this is one little aside, we should stop saying about people that maybe are particularly talented in the world that are unbelievers, maybe like a professional athlete or something, and say, oh, if, if, if that person got saved, think of the ways that God could use them. Now, I think I understand that what we mean by that sentiment, but, but I think that, under, that belies, that, that, that undermines our understanding of the sufficiency and the sovereignty of God. God doesn't need anybody. He doesn't need our natural gifts. He doesn't need any unsaved person on his team. God will do what he will do, and he can make something out of nothing. In verses 11 and 12, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. 
After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So why did Jesus do this sign? To manifest his glory so that his disciples would believe in him. Now, why this subtle first sign of turning water into wine at a wedding feast? What's going on here? I think in, in, embedded in this scene is rich symbolism. Jesus, all throughout the Bible, really all throughout the Gospels, he is the bridegroom. He's the one that has come to, to reconcile himself to his bride. And so he chooses to perform his first miracle here at a wedding where the efforts of man run out. This, this old way of doing things, these, 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 these jars full of wine, this kind of old wine, this old covenant, it has run out. It will not save. And Jesus has come to be a, a picture of the groom that has come from heaven to provide for and prepare his bride. And that's the fourth truth and final truth that I want us to see is that Jesus is the groom who prepares and provides for his bride. That's why Jesus, I think, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as John is inspired to write this gospel account, has chosen this miracle to be the first, that it's this picture of the overarching work of Jesus, that he's the groom. He has come for us, and he purifies his bride. He washes her. He prepares for her. He provides for her. And he is radically committed to joining himself to her. What are the implications of this? Friends, Jesus will not give up on his bride. Not only will he not give up on his church, so there's, there's just everybody's, we're just kind of down on one another right now, in a sense, sort of across the world. You know, people, Christians are fussing at each other. We're down on each other. We're suspicious of each other. Jesus will not give up on his bride. And what about you personally? Jesus will not give up on you. When we run out of wine, when our pots are empty, Jesus fills us to the brim and makes us new. Listen to, listen to this picture of marriage in, in Ephesians chapter 5. This is the most extended and most beautiful passage on marriage in the whole Bible in Ephesians chapter 5. And I think it's, it's what this story is really echoing and shadowing and pointing to. It says in Ephesians 5 verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what Jesus is up to. 
in this passage on marriage, Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 is teaching husbands and wives about their roles and responsibilities in marriage. And he's saying, husbands, you're playing the role of Christ. And, and wives, you're playing the role of the church. And, and men, you are to lay down your life for your bride, just as Jesus has laid down his life for the church. And women, you are to submit to the godly leadership of your husband, not letting him lead you into sin, but you are to follow him in a way that together in imperfection, you point to the perfect groom who has come to reconcile himself to his bride. But this picture of marriage, which is a picture of the gospel, is this picture of Jesus sanctifying us sanctifying you by the washing of water with his word. Why? So that he might present the church, you, dear Christian, as part of the bride of Christ, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, that we, that all believers in Jesus might be holy and without blemish. Friends, you could summarize the Bible in this way. The Bible begins with a wedding in Genesis chapter 2 when God brings Adam and Eve together. And then sin comes and breaks up this relationship, not only between men and women, but between God and man. And the rest of the story of the Bible is the story of God going after and reconciling and redeeming his bride, which is the church. So Genesis begins with a wedding, and Revelation ends with a wedding. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb where Jesus comes, and he has come to bring his bride to himself and make her ready for that day. That means, dear friends, that he won't give up on us. He who has began a good work will carry it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ, till he comes to call his bride home. And we will be ready on that day. Let me pray. Father, as we, as we consider this first miracle in John, may it lift our eyes from, from our despair, from our discouragement, from our daily lives where we can get so overwhelmed. Jesus makes all things new. Jesus has committed to his bride. Jesus has laid down his life on the cross to bear the sin of his bride. And Jesus has taken his life up from the grave. He has defeated every foe of his bride. Death, sin, and the grave. And he has called his bride to himself, which is all those that trust in Jesus. And he has promised that every part of his bride, every individual member of his bride, every person in this room who trusts in Jesus, he has promised that they will make it all the way to the wedding day when they will be joined with him forever and ever. Lord, let this lift up our eyes. Let it encourage us. Let it strengthen our weak knees. And let it help us live in this world in this coming week so that we might fight to be ready for that day as Jesus is making us ready for that day. In his name I pray. Amen.